Well, good morning or good evening, everyone. Today's uh, podcast will possibly sound a little bit different. We had some uh, technical difficulties on Sunday, uh, so I'm actually sitting here at home on uh, Monday evening and re-recording this. So if you've got your uh, Bibles uh, with you and you'd like to follow along, just turn to Genesis chapter 3 and we'll be in verses 16 through 19. This is a lesson that we started last week called the Judgment. Uh, last week we covered part 1. Today we will cover part 2, Genesis three sixteen through 19. Now I mentioned last week that Genesis 3 um, is obviously it's one of the most interesting chapters in the Bible, but it's also an extremely important chapter because it gives us the proper view of God. It's a chapter that shows us both sides of his character. He is a, a, a righteous judge who has to judge sin, yet on the other side of his character, he is loving and gracious and merciful, enough so that he gives us a covering for our sin. He gives us a way to mitigate its um, effects. And we saw that last week when we covered the uh, beginning judgment of the woman. We'll start in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, we saw last week that the judgment as applied to the woman involved two main areas. First was her relationship to her children, and the second was her relationship to her husband. Now, let's take a look at the first one as for just a quick review. God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Now, last week we talked a lot about the fact that this not only means physical pain, but also the emotional pain of childbearing as well. And we spent a lot of time on that in last week's lesson. As a review, though, I thought I would just give you a real-world example. I had run across this in my study for last week's lesson and ended up not using it. And, and I thought I would just give this to you because it just kind of gives us a good real-world example. Um, the example I want to use is of England's Queen Anne, who lived from 1665 to 1714. Now, in our modern age where we have uh, uh, sonograms, we have prenatal care, we have uh, uh, the ability to actually do surgeries in utero, uh, all of this stuff that we have, technologically speaking, uh, for women uh, today is a, is a wonderful thing. But for 99.9% of recorded history, women have not had those types of things. So let's just take an example here of Queen, of queen Anne. She was the Queen of England. And the reason I pick her is because a couple reasons. First of all, in her day... Uh, from 1665 to 1714, she would have had it as good as anybody or any woman in that age could have had it. She would have had the best food. She would have had the best shelter. She would have had the best, best living conditions, the best medical care that was absolutely um, available. Yet, when you look at her life, it was full of sorrow and pain. 
She was pregnant 17 times. 12 of those ended in miscarriages or stillborn children. Of her five live-born children, four of them died before reaching the age of two. And the final one, a boy, died at the age of 11. You see, that, in a nutshell, is the great truth of the pain in childbearing. You see, before the fall, before sin, the birth and raising of children would have been full of joy. None of those kind of things would have happened. There would have been no miscarriages. There would have been no stillborn children. There would have been no children dying as, as toddlers or anything like that. It, it, it would have just been full of joy. But after the fall, you cannot have the joy without the pain or, or the very risk of, of pain. Now, let's turn now to the second um, judgment on the woman, and that is this. God tells her, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, that's from the ESV or the English Standard Version. Let me read it to you in the New King James Version. It says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, that's a, that's a very unusual statement. And because of the word desire, some commentators have read this as having something to do with a woman's sexual desire toward her husband. But it turns out that's, that's not what it means at all. Now, if, if this was the only place in the Bible that we had this statement, it would be very difficult to interpret. But it turns out that there is one other place that this exact language is used. The exact language is used once again. And it also turns out that in that other place, it's also the same speaker, which is God. So we've got another example where God is using the exact same language. He's the speaker. And in, in this other case, it turns out the context is very straightforward. We find this example in Genesis 4, 6 through 7. It's actually the very next chapter. And it's in the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel have brought their sacrifices to God, and God has accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he has rejected Cain. And of course, Cain is very angry. And so verses 6 through 7 of chapter 4 says this, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin lies at the door. And here's the statement, And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, we can clearly see in that verse, the phrase, Its desire is for you, is referring to sin's desire to dominate and control Cain. God is warning him. He's saying, Cain, sin is at the door, and it wants to rule you. It wants to control you. It wants to enslave you. It wants to dominate you. That's very easy for us to understand. But you see, if we can understand that, now we can understand the woman's judgment. You see, the woman who was created to be a helper and a support to her husband. That is her very purpose in, to, to, in, in her creation. Here's this woman who is designed emotionally, physically, in every way to be a helper and a support to her husband. 
but yet she is now cursed with the inclination to dominate him. I mean, think about the futility I mentioned in in, in the lesson. Imagine something, uh, a piece of machinery or something that's designed or built for a certain purpose, yet for its entire life it's used for something else. The futility of that. Well, that might be a bad analogy, but think about a woman who's who's built, designed, created for a purpose. But yet, she's then cursed with an inclination to go against that purpose. As a, Instead of being a helpmate and a support, she's now inclined to dominate him. Now, what will be the result of that? Well, God says, but he shall rule over you. There's a very interesting statement in Matthew chapter 19, uh, verses 9 to, through 10. Um, the Pharisees come to Jesus... And they asked him, they said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Basically, at that time, they could put away a woman, uh, divorce her for any reason. And they wanted to know, is that lawful? And so, after a discussion, uh, they say to him, uh, Is it lawful? And after a discussion, he replies to them, verses 9 and 10. And he said this, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So according to Jesus, there is only one and only one reason for divorce, and that is sexual immorality. Um, other than that, there's you cannot divorce. And if you do remarry, you commit adultery. Now that was his statement on marriage. Now what I find interesting is the disciples' reply. The disciples then said to him, if such is the case, if that's the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, it, it's, it, it, we started out in the garden with a man and a woman, and the woman is created to support the man, and he looks at her as, as, as being made from his own flesh. He is uh, going to care for her and protect her and watch over her. It was never meant for him to rule her. And it's this perfect relationship, and then sin comes in. And now you've got a woman trying to, to subdue and dominate a man. You've got the man who's trying to rule over the woman, and they're at each other. And it's so bad that 4,000 years later, when Jesus says you shouldn't get a divorce, the disciples turn around and say, it's better then not to marry. That's what it's come to. You see, the wife is now inclined to dominate her husband. The husband, who's created to treat her as his own flesh, is now inclined to dominate her. But this was not God's original design. Now, as we said last week, this has made the plight of women in this world very, very difficult. In general, throughout history, women have been used by men for sexual fulfillment, for domestic duties, for the raising of heirs, and, and tending to children and 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 by the way lest you think that this is something that used to happen but no longer happens in a modern society let me tell you you just read the news harvey weinstein louis ck al franken roger ailes roy moore matt lauer charlie rose bill o'reilly garrison kyler the list goes on and on you see it's always been this way and for society in general it will always be this way 
Let's just take America as an example. Has there ever been a country, has there ever been a place where women's rights and feminism have been allowed to flourish for decades, like in America? And the answer to that is no. Yet the problem still remains. Why? Because it's a curse. Because you cannot change nature. It's just part of that sin nature. Now, before we move on to the man and and move away from the woman, I want to say a few things um, that are probably going to be politically incorrect, but they're also biblically correct. A few weeks ago, I introduced you to the concept of complementarianism. Now, complementarianism is a big word, uh, but it's basically the biblical teaching that men and women have particular roles and responsibility uh, in the church, uh, in the marriage, and in the family. And these roles and responsibilities are based on their gender. Now, we did, you know, we, we gave their scriptures all over for this, and we gave uh, many of those, of those scriptures. The other side of this coin, though, is something called egalitarianism of which feminism is a subset. Now, egalitarianism basically teaches that roles and responsibilities among men and women should emerge not from their gender, but only from their competency. Now, when we first hear that, we we are kind of drawn to that. You know, here in America, we're kind of, we're all about, you know, pull yourself up from your bootstrap and if you know, and if you can, if you can do something, hey, have at it. So this 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 viewpoint of egalitarianism really fits with our our social construct. So here's the two things: the Bible teaches complementarianism, that you have a role and responsibility based on your gender. Egalitarianism or feminism, uh, which is a subset of it, says no, that's not true that your your roles and responsibilities should emerge from competency only. Let, let me put this another way. If your child was to ask you, Daddy, what does it mean to grow up and be a man and not a woman? What would you say? Or if your daughter says, Mommy, what does it mean to grow up and be a woman and not a man? What do you say? How do you, how do you answer that? You see, many people today might answer this way. They may say, well, what it means is, is that you'll have maturity and wisdom and courage and sacrifice and humility and patience and self-control and faith and hope and etc., etc. Now, those are all great things. In fact, they're things that men and women should both have. You see, the fact is that doesn't answer the question. The question was, what does it mean to grow up and be one and not the other? In other words, are there built-in roles and responsibilities that I have simply because I'm a male or simply because I'm a female? Now, egalitarians would answer no. There is no difference. See, they don't define us by gender. They want to define us by competency. So their answer to that would be, to that question would be, there is no difference between men 
and and what you know what does it mean to grow up to be a man and not a woman they they don't answer the question they can't answer the question because to them there is no difference in fact it's gotten to the point in our society well no one will even ask the question anymore that this it's just a non-issue egalitarianism has become a firm conviction in our culture but i want to tell you what this is doing is confusing everyone especially our children you see it is the dynamics in the home that form a child's concept of manhood and womanhood it's the dynamics in the home that significantly shape their sexual preferences and when these dynamics are confused the the consequences can be catastrophic for example it is well known there are studies all over the place that show that a father's affirmation of a son's masculinity and a daughter's femininity is especially powerful in forming sexual identity. But the fact is, not only are children today growing up in homes with absent fathers, where there's that father is not there to affirm that, they're also growing up in homes where these differences are constantly denied between men and women. And then we wonder why there's such a surge in gender-related sexual issues such as transgenderism. And beyond that, let me tell you, it is absolutely tragic when an entire culture refuses to tell men that their manhood includes and requires a peculiar kind of care for women. And I'm telling you, 50 years of denying it is one of the seeds that's bearing some very bad fruit in our society today. In particular, it has become an accepted notion in our culture that men, just as men, do not owe women anything. That, And especially, we don't owe women a special kind of care and protection and honor that they don't owe us. But, I'm, but I believe the Bible teaches clearly that we do owe women a special kind of care and protection and honor just because we're men. Now, obviously, in society, we've got a lot of issues here. Is there any hope of being delivered from this? Well, absolutely there is. You see, just as He did with women in childbirth, God has given us a way to mitigate or lessen the curse in the relationship between men and women. He has given us the means to not only protect women, but also allow women to flourish. I'm going to give you three scriptures, just to kind of give you an example of what I mean. Colossians 3.19 says this, Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Now, let me tell you, we all agree men should not be harsh with women, and women should not be harsh with men. We shouldn't be harsh with one another. But this scripture is not the same as saying neither of you be harsh. It is a special restraint on typical sinful male harshness and roughness and cruelty that's gone on for thousands of years. Men have an inclination to be harsh. Men have an inclination to be rough and cruel with their wives. And so scripture, in this case Paul, goes out of his way to call out a man and say, Husbands, love your wives and do not 
be harsh with them. Another example, Ephesians five twenty-five through 29. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as his own body. For he who loves his wife loves himself. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. I mean, has there ever been any scripture as anti-curse as this one? I would argue in every society on the planet, this is countercultural. Men love, this is how you're to love your wives. Love her like Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. He died for her. He served her. Love her like you love your own body. See, and this is all laid on the man. Not because he's more competent. It's laid on the man just because he's a man. And, and you cannot say this responsibility is interchangeable with a woman. It's no more interchangeable with a woman anymore than Christ and the church could be interchangeable. This is a special responsibility of the man toward women for honor and care and protection just because he's a man. And I would argue from Scripture that this special burden that's put on the man, put on the husband does not evaporate when he walks out of his front door. Manhood does not cease to be manhood outside the home. That we are to treat women in the workplace. We are to treat women in our, our, our school environment. We are to treat women in whatever environment we encounter them the exact same way. Honor, care, and protect. One more. 1 Peter 3.7 Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, listen, I understand, as I said in the lesson, if I were to uh, go to the mall or go to Winn-Dixie and begin to read this scripture, they'd pick up stones and stone me. And and the fact is, anytime you refer to a woman as a weaker vessel, people's hackles are going to go up. Their their hair is going to stand on end. They're, they they immediately stop listening because all they see is the weaker vessel, and they completely miss the rest of the of the verse. Now listen, there are ways that women are just as strong, and may even be stronger than men. But there are also ways that women are weaker than men. They're physically weaker than men, and that makes them susceptible to abuse. They're also tied to their children and to their families in a way that men are not. And, and, it, and, and in some ways, that can make them weaker in a certain sense. But there are also ways they're much stronger. But in this verse, Peter is focusing on the strength of men versus the weakness of women and he's asking a question how does a man relate to a woman if she is weaker more vulnerable to his power we see the curse says the man will rule over her but peter says honor her honor her honor her that word honor means to respect to value to to literally put her on a pedestal See, this is, this is not, again, this is not mutual honor 
between a man and a woman that's being asked for here. Sure, women should honor men. Yes, men should honor women. But he is going out of his way to tell husbands, honor her as a weaker vessel. Don't abuse her. Don't don't rule her. Don't dominate her. Don't subdue her. Value her. Admire her. Respect her. Put her on a pedestal. You see, this is a special honor that flows from the stronger to the weaker. This is a peculiar, special honor that God expects from the man. Why? Just because he's a man. We said it last week. God is just, and there will always be consequences for our sin. But God is also gracious and loving and merciful. And He gives us coverings to mitigate and lessen the effect of the consequences. And in order to mitigate the effects of the curse, He shall rule over you. God has inserted between men and women a special duty, a special responsibility that a man has just because he's a man. And that is to honor her. You see, God has designed that men, just because they're men, are to show a special care, protection, and honor toward women. This is good for families. It's good for churches. It's good for society. And it's good for women in particular. But let me tell you, our society refuses to think this way. You see, God has given us the answer. God has given us a way for to 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 for men to keep in check or to restrain their male power. At the same time, He's given us a way, an incentive for male valor. He He's given us a way for women to flourish. And the world says, nope, I don't want anything to do with that. And they've thrown it out the window. They refuse to think that way. Instead, they have put their hope in the myth of human virtue. Hey, we're all good people. And men are good people. And if you just give them the chance and you just educate them, they'll do the right thing and they'll treat each other with respect. But folks, it isn't working. Men need to be taught from the time they are little boys that part of what it means to be a man is to protect women, to care for women, to respect women, and to honor women. They need to know that they have a special responsibility towards women just because they are men. Now with that, let's turn over to the man. If the curse hits the woman at the very center of her identity which is her family and her children, it does the same for the man. She struggles with the reality of sin in the home. He struggles with the reality of sin when he goes to work. Now I want to look at the the judgment on the man. And to do that I want to look at three things. The cause, the curse, and the consequences. Let's look first at the cause. Genesis 3.17 And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Now, if I ask most people, why, uh, what did Adam do wrong? Most people would say, well, he he ate of the tree and he, he wasn't supposed to eat of it. And that would be right. But you'll notice here in verse 17, God actually lists two things that he did wrong. Number one, he said, you listen 
to the voice of your wife. And number two, you ate of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Now, sometimes listening to the voice of your wife can be the smartest thing that a man can do. But the fact is, it is wrong to listen to your wife when she contradicts God's Word. And that was exactly what Adam did. Instead of being the leader, instead of setting the example, Adam abdicated leadership to his wife and obeyed her voice instead of the voice of God. And God held Adam accountable for that, as He will hold every man accountable for that. Now, one thing... The second thing that Adam did, of course, was he ate of the fruit. Now, something interesting here to me. Isn't it interesting that the act itself does not have any moral element to it? I mean, just think about that. There's nothing immoral about picking a piece of fruit off a tree and eating it. It doesn't harm any other person. It doesn't violate any personal relationship. It was a totally an amoral act, so to speak. And there's a reason for this that I think. You see, I think if it had been some moral thing, one of those things that we paint as a a quote-unquote major iniquity, then we might be under the illusion that it's only the major sins that concern God. But see, the reality is, is that the foundation of any sin is exactly the same. The, the, the foundation of every sin is exactly the same. And that is disobedience to God's Word. You see, that is why any violation of God's law is a damning violation. The act itself is secondary to the disobedience. So that's the cause. We turn now to the curse. Let's finish verse 17 and look at verse 18. God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Now I want you to notice that the curse isn't on the man personally. You remembered on the serpent, he cursed the serpent personally. He said, On the ground you go. But with the woman and the man... He doesn't curse them personally. He curses the sphere or the realm. With the woman, it's the family, the the relationship with her husband and children. With the man, it's his realm, which is his workplace. The, The man who's created to be the king of the earth will become subordinate to dirt. His life is not going to be easy. The very ground which provides sustenance for him and his family is not going to willfully submit to him. Life will become hard work. The joy of paradise is gone. Now, anyone who's ever planted a garden will understand how this curse works. Lack of water. You know, we mentioned a a few weeks ago in our study that rain can be a great thing, but it's also part of the curse. The fact that it rains here and doesn't rain there. In the garden, the water came up out of the ground and watered everything. It was like having a natural irrigation system. But with rain, um, sometimes we have drought. Sometimes we have too much. Sometimes we have too little. So we've got lack of water, bad soil, weeds, weather, animals, birds, insects. Those are all the problems that curse the ground. Now the earth will yield its bounty. It will yield sustenance for the family. But it is going to take a tremendous amount of effort and hard work to get that bounty out of the ground. That is the plight of the man.
Now, let's finally, let's look at the consequence. Verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, in itself, hard work is not a bad thing. Um, in fact, if you remember from one of our earlier studies, God put Adam in there to tend the garden. Work was a, was a pre-fall thing. It, it wasn't something that comes along after. So, so the work is not the issue. Work is a good thing. It's Work is a God-ordained thing. And as men, we should feel a reward in that work and providing for our families. But one of the things that makes the curse the curse is the futility of it all. Ecclesiastes 2, 11-17, Solomon, who is the wisest man to ever live, he wrote these words, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Therefore I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Verse 23, For all his days are sorrowful, and his work burdensome, and even in the night his heart takes no rest. You see, that just about sums it up. For a man, part of the curse is you're going to work, and at the end of the day you're going to go to bed, you're going to wake up, and the next day you're going to do it again, and the next day you're going to do it again, and again, and again, and you're going to work your whole life, and then you're going to die, and everything that you work for and built is going to go to somebody else. That's, that's what the, the, uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes said. You see, life can take on this futility, this, this cyclical sameness, a, a blandness, a, a meaninglessness. See, that's part of the curse. So it's not just the hard work, but it's the futility of the hard work that you seem to never, it's never enough. You, it never brings the satisfaction that it should. Now, that's the curse. Here's the other factor. Is there any hope of being delivered from that? Has God given us as men anything to mitigate that? Well, of course there is. As we've said, the God who judges is also gracious and merciful. You see, just as the curse on the woman changes dramatically when she raises godly children, and her relationship with her husband changes dramatically when they both begin to live out biblical Christian principles. The same is true for the man in the realm of his work because becoming a Christian changes everything. Let me give you a couple scriptures in this regard. Titus 2, 9-10 through Bond servants are to be subject to their masters in everything. Now in that day and age, a bond servant could be a slave, a bond servant could be a, a hireling, but, but the fact here is the principle here is the same. You've got one person who works for another. Bond servants are to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, and here's why, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. See, here is a brand new New Testament perspective on work. 
Work now becomes an environment in which I can demonstrate my salvation. Here's another one, Colossians three twenty-two to twenty-three. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of the heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, for you are serving the Lord Christ. You see, my work now becomes a way that people around me can be drawn to Christ. Work is transformed from this vain, empty, and meaningless thing to something with eternal ramifications and value. See, work is now a completely different thing in Christ. I'm I'm witnessing for Christ. I'm doing my very best for Christ, and I'm offering it to Him as an act of worship. And Paul says, I will receive an eternal reward for that, which the Lord Himself will give to me. Now, in the end, as Adam was told, death will come for him, as it will for Eve and as it does for all of us. Our bodies eventually will return to dust. Death is no respecter of persons. It can come to the young and the old, the rich and the poor, the black and the white. We all must face death. But as terrible an enemy as death is, even it has a blessing. Because it forces us to come to terms with God and eternity. Death shouts at us that we desperately need to be made right with God. Next week, we will finish up Genesis chapter 3 and cover verses 22-24. The title of our lesson will be The Covering. Um, If you'd like to read ahead and study, and until then, have a great day.